So are you ready to rock and roll? Let's rock and roll. Absolutely. No, hold on. Yes, I am. (laughs) Here, better yet, are you ready to rock Recovery Nation? I am. Yes, yes. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In today's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted interviews writer and editor Lee Weber. Lee is the creator of addictionblog.org, an online magazine for people who want to learn about drug addiction potential. Now Lee is writing books for clinicians about how to best work with addicted populations, and she joins us from her home in Macedonia. I have to admit, in preparing and doing research for this podcast, I was a bit unclear of where I stand on the big legalization of weed question. I'm an alcohol and drug counselor who has seen people from young adolescents to adults who actually became addicted to weed. And this really made me a believer that yes, marijuana can be addicting. The whole increased tolerance thing, the weed withdrawal symptoms, the daily use, people losing their motivation, adolescents dropping out of school, having legal and occupational problems, it all seemed to make simple sense to me. Weed is bad. Yet I know that only 10% of people with alcohol or drug problems will actually show up to the treatment doors, at least according to the National Institute of Health. I have to admit, as a treatment provider, I didn't even really think of this other 90% that was still running around using various substances, treating themselves through conventional or unconventional ways. Or maybe there was even some just recreational users who used but never became addicted. They were simply just not on my radar. Well, maybe this is why this legalization of marijuana has come to the forefront. Additionally, the National Institute of Health and a National Survey on Drug Use and Health both have come up with findings which indicate that the perceived harm or risk from smoking marijuana has rapidly decreased. This may be the reason why the country at this point is split in terms of percentages of people who want to legalize recreational marijuana use. I'm here with the amazing, amazing Lee Weber. Um, she is an addiction blogger, and she's been through recovery herself, and we have her on the show today. So it's glad to have you with us, Lee. Do you have any... Thanks for having me, Ted. Thank you. Awesome. So typically what our big first question is, is always like, tell us a little bit, a little bit about who you are, and uh, what's an average day in the life of uh, Lee Weber look like? Yeah, that's the question, right? Like, who am I? Who am I? Yeah, identity. I I identify as a woman in long-term recovery, which means that I don't really identify as an addict. I don't like that word addict. I don't like labeling people as addicts, you know? But I'm a woman in long-term recovery, and I'm taking on more and more responsibility. So I'm a mother, and I'm a wife, and I also have started blogging and writing about addiction, So part of my identity is wrapped up in that writer role, you know. Uh, A typical day in my life is bouncing back and forth between priorities. Whatever's the most important thing in front of me, it's making a sandwich, you know. (laughs) Other times it's it's answering a question on email. 
Other times it's crafting an ebook that's going to be to a specific audience about a specific topic. Like we just wrote an ebook about how to quit cocaine. That was that wild, you know, because cocaine, the cravings, they, they can kick back. Anyway, so whatever is in front of me at the moment is what I have to do. So I guess I'm a juggler. A juggler, yeah. a master juggler. Do you know how to juggle? <laughs> yeah. uh, not for more than 10 seconds. I can do a good 10 seconds. <laughs> See, so maybe that's the scoop would be as you improve your juggling skills, you'll be able to ha- juggle more and more tasks. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what life ends up giving you, yeah. <laughs> too. Life's like, oh, you did that? Do this. Yeah, do more. Go ahead. Capacity. <laughs> So how was life, um, well, what's the substances you've, you've struggled with, I guess, first? Oh, right. Yeah, so my, my path to addiction uh, started with uh, weed, actually. I'm a, I'm a pothead. I loved weed. I loved getting high, staying high all day going to bed high and then waking up and smoking and, you know, wake and bake. So I would drink when I couldn't smoke weed, like when I was in Africa and it was a little too dangerous to get pot because you didn't know if you'd go to prison. I would, I'd start, I started drinking. So I came into recovery after about in the Peace Corps. I was in West Africa and two friends came up to me and they asked me, um, do you remember last night? And I was kind of, and I was off the hook, apparently. They said, they said, we're worried about you. We want you to get help. And I said, uh, I think you're right. I am too. And so I went to a rehab. That was awesome. Okay. I, but I was ready for it. I was ready. I was one of those high-functioning people who was trying to escape the stress and kind of the emotional anxiety through, through pot and through alcohol. So I've tried other drugs, but those are my main two. Marijuana use can lead to the development of problem use, known as marijuana use disorder, which takes the form of addiction in severe cases. 30% of those who use marijuana may have some degree of marijuana use disorder. People who begin using marijuana before the age of 18 are four to seven times more likely to develop a marijuana use disorder than when they start as adults. So, you know, I was in Whitewater. I'm a, I'm a teacher at UW-Whitewater, and I teach this class called Introduction to Alcohol and Other Drug Studies. So one of the, one of the uh, discussions that popped up in class yesterday was this idea of a lot of students saying, well, pot isn't necessarily bad for you. You know, I pulled the class. So I have about 80 students. I would probably say the poll came out to 15 of them were active pot users. And so the question emerged. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So the question emerged was like, well, what's the big deal about pot, Ted? Um, there's really nothing going on for me now. I'm able to go to my classes. I have a job. Um, you know, it's legal in Colorado and Washington in the United States. So what's the big deal about it? And so I was curious about you, sort of being um, a, a savvy veteran of of marijuana. How did it did it did it sneak up on you, and how long did that progression take? Just out of curiosity. Well, you know, they estimate between nine to thirteen percent of all um, smokers 
of anyone who consumes marijuana can are become addicted, become psychologically dependent on marijuana. Uh, nine to thirteen percent, and I was one of those people. So I don't know if it snuck up on me as much as I was just predisposed to it. I loved the euphoria, but it only lasts for about four hours, you know. So to get back into the euphoria and then to get back into my mind, into that state, I would just have to keep smoking. So I feel like uh, for your students, they need to know, though, that their brains are still developing, that until the age of 25, they can actually harm their ability to learn and to remember things. Because I'll tell you, my long-term memory uh, is really bad. And I can have short-term recall and mid-term recall, but... I, I've lost some memory, Ted, as a result of smoking weed. Really? How, how, how many years yeah. do you think you smoked? Uh, five. Five years. Five. So just, so that's not really, I mean, it's a long time, but there's other people that have, I mean, they have studies where people have track people for like 30 years. So in five years, just your experience of it, just for you in particular, Lee, you've noticed some changes, some impact on your memory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. As well as I, I think that especially of college age, I think that the thing that they should really be thinking about is decision making and being able to um, process learning because learning takes front. It takes place in so many different areas of the brain. Right. And if your neural networks are being overloaded with THC, and that are affecting these, not only the reward centers, but the ability to learn, you are affecting your brain in a way that can impact your, your future. And yeah, I think it's, it's difficult for college students to think about it. It's not like, oh, it's, you know, related to, everybody talks about cancer, and lung cancer, and the risks of smoking, and oh, it's natural. And it is, it is natural, but Dudes, that stuff builds up and it crushes your immune system. It absolutely gets hold of those adrenals and you get sick more often. Like I was constantly, I was constantly getting flus and viruses and uh, I get chronic cold sores and they come coming up every two weeks when I was smoking because okay. my immune system was shot. What would you say? Because, you know, I'm in dialogue with these kids, like students every week. And they're in college, so, uh, hey, I drink a couple times on the weekend. Every now and then I binge drink, and I smoke pot on the weekends. And so what's interesting to me is when I worked in the, because I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, so I've worked in the treatment world so long. So uh, we always preached, obviously, people we worked with were coming in because they needed help and they knew they were addicted, or most of them did. So we didn't really have to cross this bridge or this discussion or this conversation about the idea that, like, let's say 9 to 13% of people who smoke marijuana will get hooked. The percentages are actually in your favor that you won't. So mm-hmm. based on our discussion, I could see some of my students definitely coming back and saying, well, it's roughly a 10% chance. Um I guess it's a high percentage. I mean, when you think about 10%, like if you had a 10% chance to get cancer, I mean, you probably wouldn't engage in that particular activity. But at the same time, um, they really see it as like, they don't really, and it's natural in terms of just late teen development that you just don't look at the long term a lot of times. And you say, hey, the odds are in my favor. 
So if the majority of people who use marijuana never develop a problem, how would I actually figure out if I was among the unfortunate that was in the process of developing a problem? So what would you say to that response? Like, hey, not the majority of people who smoke pot don't get addicted. So what do I have to worry about, Lee? Well, first I would give you the warning signs of, so you could identify addiction, you know? So regardless, to know that you're addicted to, to any chemical, it doesn't need, you do not need to be physically dependent on it. And physical dependence does develop with marijuana use. So, okay, so those are two, two kind of concepts. So the first thing I would say is, well, listen, guys, number one, can you just not use for a period of 28 days? Just try it out. Because if you can stop and stay stopped, that's, that's a hallmark trait of someone who's not addicted. Okay? Yeah. Right? So I'd say that's, but on the other hand, if you can stop but not stay stopped, you, you got to start asking yourself some questions. So then what's the next level? The next level would be, well, is it affecting your, your home life? Is it affecting your work? Is it affecting your school? And if you're going to be really honest with yourself, you need to make a list of pros and cons. Because I bet that you smoking, you smoking marijuana is going to be affecting one of those three things or your relationships. You know, when I was smoking weed, I couldn't have a real relationship with my parents. I was on the phone high with them. Just like not caring about stuff, just in my own thing, you know, distant, you know, it was my wall. Marijuana was my wall. So I would say, okay, you know, can you stay stopped for one? For, for two, is it affecting any other part of your life? You know? And for three, are you actually dependent on it? Like, are you physically dependent on it? Because if you're physically dependent on it and you go through withdrawal, which can be anything from headaches to mood, you just get anxious or depressed or a little bit cranky when you don't have weed, you know, those could be three signs that you do have a problem. And I would say that the biggest risk of just of becoming a pothead is just killing your own ambition. Mm. Because when you are smoking, you cannot achieve as much as you can when you are sober. See, I, I love I, this. I believe that. Yeah, I totally love this because oftentimes we'll have people standing, you know, at the pulpit preaching, you know, that pot's bad for people, that pot's bad, you know, for young minds, that sort of thing. But (laughs) what I like about this interview already is you've already gone there. You've actually, you're, you're like gone in, done it for five years, saw what happened and now have come out. So you, you speak from personal experience, which I think is, is it's just so good to hear somebody talk from their personal experience rather than the research and what typically everybody else says. Yeah. Pot can be great. It can actually open windows of, I think, perception. I think, I think it can be used as a tool for creativity. I think that it can also be stress reliever. I mean, would you rather, would you rather take a prescription drug, you know, or would you rather smoke a joint? Yeah. I mean, really, in terms of, you know, in terms of harm reduction. <laughs> yeah. So it has its uses. It totally does. And even recreationally, every now and then is great. I'm just not an every now and then kind of person. Mm. If I were to even get high now, I'd, I've got kids now. I couldn't be around my kids in the same authentic way. 
You know, I couldn't be present when you are high. You are not present for people. Yeah. You are disconnected. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, that kind of movement, because what's really resonating for me right now is this kind of idea of you describing your pot experiences and like the euphoria connected to it. Even though you weren't connected, it obviously was a wall for you, but it provided a euphoric. It was a euphoric wall. Yeah. And so you, if you decide to walk away, let's say you recognize, wait a second, this is getting out of hand. I got to give this up. And, you know, I really like this model of if you really, if you can't give anything up for 30 days, it's probably telling you something that there's something more to that yeah. relationship with that thing than probably you knew before. So if I got hooked, what would I do? Especially if I got like a, really good euphoric effect and can smoke day and night. Besides, marijuana opens up creative channels, doesn't it? It relaxes me and clears away all those distractions and gives me a clear mindset. I mean, some of the best music and art in the world has probably been created by artists who are high. So if I can't get that effect, what the hell am I supposed to do? So how does one then transition if you're used to having that wall up And we know that so many people that struggle with addiction, over half of them will have some sort of underlying issue like anxiety or depression or or like bipolar disorder, um, which might have been underneath, which might have been driving it. How do you navigate that territory from going from having a wall, but then the wall being euphoric, you stop Mm -hmm. that. So now you don't have the wall. And I hear a lot of people say like when they enter early recovery... It's like boring, they're dulled out, they don't really get it. So I'd be curious about just your own honest journey from taking the wall down and then what that journey looked like for you. The shield and the guard of a drug, now you kind of have to grow up. I, I say, you know, when I was using, I was just delaying this whole growing up thing. I was delaying becoming adult because I was late onset. So late onset, I mean, I didn't do anything in in my high school years, and it started late in college and university, and it really got kicking in my mid-20s, yeah. I was a late bloomer. But the, so how do you get to emotional sobriety? Ted, I'm still asking myself that question. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, you know, I got depressed, I'm depressed right now, but you know, I own it. You know, my husband and I can talk about it. You know, we can, then we, then we identify the actions that I can take to get myself out of that. So it's it's all just work on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you hang, I'm going to call it hanging in the pocket with emotional sobriety, which means that you give up the substance. I mean, in this case it's pot, but I mean, I think other people who have other addictions can probably completely relate to this dynamic that you sort of enter your sober body for the first time or, or you sort of reacclimate to your sober body. And what's that, like, what do you think was the bridge or a few of the, the key bridge moments that allowed you to not like go back to getting high? Cause like what I hear a lot oh. of times is people will come out or I, I, I was seven days clean and then I just went back and then they <laughs> kind of go back, they come back out and they maybe put together three days and they go back then they go a month and they go back. And so I'm always curious about those magical moments, those, those things that actually people figure out about themselves 
they're in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Like giving a pot and going your first couple of weeks clean is not an easy thing. And I'm always curious about what do people within themselves access to pull themselves through that? Like in that early stage. Yeah. If you I was re- really, I was really primed for a spiritual um, transformation though, because I grew up, I grew up in a Christian church um, and I had during college, I had basically rebelled against the beliefs that I had and nothing was replacing it. So I was, I was primed and I would, for me, the moment came when someone was talking about first law of thermodynamics in that energy is neither created nor destroyed. It is conserved. And if I could agree with that theory, then I could believe in God. And I was like, oh my gosh, boom. Yes. I can get down with that. If nothing is neither created nor destroyed, but conserved, then we're all part of the same universe and we're all in it together. And we are all one. There's one thing. And when I could believe in that, because I had no belief, then I could, then I could get out of my disbelief because mm. I was just agnostic and, and I was, I was smoking weed to try to find God, to be honest. So you might've grabbed, are you that saying you, that, that you kind of gravitated towards weed there was a spiritual component to why you gravitated towards it. Yeah. 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 If I'm hearing you correctly. So then you're saying like, I had this, I, I sort of like went against the church and my beliefs. I didn't have that because I was so busy fighting it. I gravitated towards weed, which opened up some sort of like spiritual component in yourself. And then you kind of had this, is it like this aha moment on some level with thermal dynamics, which then opens the door to say, Oh, uh, maybe there is a spiritual life for me. And do you think like yeah. that ties into having faith in early recovery at all? Like just being able to do it or how do you think that fit into making you strong in those first couple weeks or first month? Well, if I could accept, if I could have that faith that there is an energy and that energy is interconnected and it's not going anywhere, then stuff was going to sort itself out. And that's what I come back to even, even today when I'm at my lowest point, I think, okay, you know what? It's, it's all connected. It's going to work out. It's okay. So that, that's my foundational belief. So really kind of almost tie in like spirit in with this thought process of like, I really like that thought. It's all going to work out in the end. There's a little bit of unknown to where things are at now, but I have faith that things are going to work out in the end, I'm going to kind of go down maybe the path I was meant to go down. And are you saying that? Yes. That- and all I, have, all I have to do is do the work and then more will be revealed. I also liked that. I liked that more will be revealed, but it's not your job to know everything now. It will be revealed. Mm. What a great, what a great thought. Like in what a great way, almost like a goal of more will be revealed if I do the work. So I'm going to take action. I'm going to start taking like some different actions in my life. Maybe um, eight out of 10 aren't going to be helpful to me, but by taking some actions, I'll identify those two that are helpful Yeah. and that I don't have to have it all figured out in the first day or first week. And that maybe it's an ongoing process of, you know, sort of having your journey revealed to you as long as you stay on that particular path. Is that what you're saying? Precisely. 
Oh, yeah. yes. I'm actually listening this early, so that's an accomplishment. <laughs> My wife should take advantage of this moment right now. <laughs> so I, I'm going to totally go off here and kind of almost think of like, does the journey with Pat somehow parallel that? So you're high, you're euphoric, you're getting some sort of spiritual input. It's probably... Yeah maybe fragmented, not totally coherent, but like, does that feed somebody's addiction in some way? I mean, cause I've never, I, I've, I've never gone, di- I've never dived deep into this particular aspect of addiction, but really trying to understand if I smoke a lot of pot, um, obviously it, it can help me deal with my anxiety or depression, make me feel better, but then you're actually identifying something deeper which is like it actually offered this like sort of like mini spiritual part. Well, the sadhus, the Indian mystics, the sadhus who give up everything and take on, they take a vow of poverty and they live where they live in nature. Actually, the they smoke pot almost all the time while they're meditating. And the Rastafarians, you know, they access they access deeper dimensions of themselves and the universe through pot. And I'm sure other cultures do as well. Those are just two that I can think of notably. Um, I, for, I just know for me, it was kind of a dead end because I was running away from some other things. Mm. So mm. I needed, I need the clarity of sobriety in order to address this underlying anxiety I have about the world <laughs> and about trying to control you know, because my, my problem wasn't that I didn't have ideas. My problem was that I needed to just let energy th- flow through me, hmm. you know, just let a little bit. And pot turned it on because, you know, also THC is strange because it's both a stimulant and a depressant. So it affects the brain in this paradoxical way. Um, and I I just know for me that it can it can be a hallucinogenic THC, especially in higher doses, but I, I, I want to access the world in a way that I can remember and that I can also uh, share with others. Mm. And I, and I think, I do think that people who are high, I, I don't know how they can act, how they can connect with others. Maybe it's possible. Maybe it's possible, mm. but I was just so internalized. Yeah. If I had to start somewhere to get help, what should I do? Should I go up the block to the nearest treatment center, work it out on my own, or just take a short break from smoking pot? Maybe for 30 days. I mean, if only a small percentage of people show up to treatment for marijuana dependency, there must be a bunch of people out there that are able to figure it out on their own. So what do you, what would you say to somebody who maybe listens to the podcast, they might have been following or be on the same journey that you were on, smoking pot a lot, it's kind of escalated. They happen to be one of those 10% that feel like, you know, that have gotten addicted to it and kind of like the, you know, the light bulb's going on. Yeah, maybe I do have a problem because I've talked to a lot of people, they kind of have a general sense with substances. Maybe they're not going to say they're addicted, but they kind of get a sense like, yeah, maybe this is giving me some problems. And so they've had some contemplation about it. 
What would you say to them? Would you have some words of wisdom or advice or direction to go? If they're listening to this at, let's say, 8 p.m. at night and they're going to wake up tomorrow morning. Yeah, I mean, if you want to quit, do it with a guide. So for me, uh, the best guide was um, a licensed clinical psychotherapist. Um, And a clinical therapist can help you uh, address the reasons why you're using so much because it can be hard to unravel the onion. So a therapist can help you deal with your major issues, your attachment issues, can uh, past hurt, resentment, um, and help you kind of start to love yourself again. The the path of recovery is the path to self-love. So I would say first look up a good psychotherapist in your area and you can get that person through referral or you can look online the american psychologist psychologist association the apa yes they have a locator yeah the apa.org go there and look for a psychotherapist um the second thing i would say is to find another person or a group of people who can identify with you you need a guide don't you don't have to do it by yourself So in addition to therapy, which is in a clinical setting, I would say go and join a support group. Um, I joined AA because I didn't really resonate with NA. But there are other groups too. There's things like heart recovery or SOS. Um, You don't always have to go down the 12-step route, but you do need other people. And then I would say the third thing would be to talk to your friends and family about your real issues, meaning be honest, be honest with yourself and then be honest with the people around you. Because when you ask for help and you show that vulnerability, uh, first of all, those people who love you, they will be, they will be happy for you. And second of all, it's not a weakness. It's actually a strength. So in letting go. So those would be the three things I would do. So find a therapist, find a community of people, and then tell, talk with your, your closest uh, trusted people. Well, wow, those are some gold nuggets, Lee. Uh, three-step approach right there. And I think, like, it's a great approach from the sense that, you know, you're starting out, you're thinking about it. So a lot of people think, like, just because... I tell somebody about it, that means I automatically have to stop. And what I've seen in my experience is people move towards change over time. So maybe even taking one of those three steps, maybe it's just opening up to somebody close to you to say, I have some concerns, I'm worried a little bit about my use. And that's a victory in itself, that you've already entered the path of of trying to get clean or, or just being victorious in terms of like making one small step. And then you combine that with some other steps and some other actions, and you can really kind of get yourself off to the races, that it's not as dismal, as hard as as people might say. But if you have the right kind of support and have that faith that you want to take the... It's kind of like the journey of, of the unknown, correct? If, if, if you've never... Yeah. If you've never been tried to go sober before, it is unknown, yeah. It is the path you've never traveled. So how can you know what that path is going to be? You can't. I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. And not to get down on yourself either. I mean, I remember I wanted to stop smoking and I would tell myself, okay, that's it. I'm not going to have another, you know, I'm not going to smoke another pipe for three days. And uh, come on, two hours later, I was smoking again. And those thoughts of like being hard on yourself, like, oh gosh, I'm worthless. I can't do anything I set out to do, blah, 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 blah. Don't listen to those thoughts. That That's just a record playing a loop in your head. You know, those self-defeating thoughts that you can't do it and that no good, keep those things, write them down because that's the stuff you can talk about. (laughs) Yes. You know, you got to figure out where does that messaging come from? Because we are innately born, I think, um, there's a, okay, because I was raised like to believe that human nature is like really soiled, but I actually believe the opposite. I believe now that human nature is very beautiful and loving and kind and in a vacuum, you know, those thoughts have been given to us. They are not who we are. Hmm. So really kind of figuring out your messaging. Yeah. And yeah. I like the Break part of, down. yeah, man, I, I totally like this part about self-love and it seems like so cliche. I mean, a lot of people will talk about it, but it actually has a connection with, at least what I'm thinking right now, a connection with if you're going to try to say, all right, I'm not going to smoke for three days. And maybe down deep, you do have some of those feelings that you don't like yourself very well. And then you attempt it and you fail. Then it activates those kind of deep down thoughts, which are like, oh, I'm a loser. I, I couldn't do it. I'm a failure. I'm a screw up. And almost like it would promote then probably... A case of what I call is kind of like the fuck it's like fuck it. I might as well just smoke. Exactly. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Did you experience any of that? Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's it. That's it. I think anytime um, somebody who you know is facing addiction uses their drug of choice, anytime they use their drug of choice, it's a fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's so well said. People remember that actually. So, yeah. like, I'm super stoked now about kind of going a little bit further with this idea of how do you actually practice more self-love and begin to kind of shift that mm-hmm. part about, like, maybe I don't like myself very much and I'm currently hooked. Now I'm going to try to reach out and tell somebody. And hopefully, I always encourage people to pick somebody that you think will receive you well, because you don't want to be given like a huge lecture and put down for reaching out. But then how do you actually, because it's like this magical, it's like this unknown thing of like, well, how do you begin to shift and love yourself more? And maybe if you could, Lee, if you can, for your own personal journey, where do you think like there were some shift points? And what was involved in those shift points? Because everybody wants to feel better about themselves, including me. I mean, I've discovered just in my own life that I've begun to feel better about myself when I take this sort of like action sometimes into the unknown. And I'm successful that I don't stay in my comfort zone. I don't keep doing the same thing I've always done. But I take a chance, a risk, hang out with people that maybe are a lot smarter than me or understand something way more than me and then kind of learn from them. But what is it? Yeah. 
Yes. Self-love comes through taking action. That's it. Because you cannot plan to love yourself. It just happens. It evolves. (laughs) But it comes through those actions. And for me, it's come through the actions of doing the work of psychotherapy, which I still do, you know, even 14 years into it. I still see a therapist. Um, I also connect with others. So I form community around people I can be vulnerable with. Um, And they reflect it back to you, Ted, by the way, like you and me, you know, like we see each other and we're mirrors for each other. And then, you know, the close friends and relatives as well. But then meditation, It, it comes through a deeper understanding of yourself in relation to everything. And that can only come when you're still and when you sort of shut down the CPU, when the central processing unit can go quiet, then you can work on the software. Mm. Well said. And I know there's so much work that's been done in the area of mindfulness and and meditation and how beneficial that is. So I guess... What I'm thinking about is tell me a little bit about your journey into the blog world and how that has benefited maybe yourself and your recovery and what you've learned in that from that world. Oh gosh, my my blog I started blogging because my husband kind of pushed me into it. <laughs> He's my he sets the bar high. <laughs> um actually I just I just given birth to my son and we had been working on another website that was related to health. So I had started writing a, like a medical encyclopedia of sorts for all sorts of medical conditions. I had started practicing writing again after a hiatus of, I don't know, 15 years. Cause I write. And in fact, here, you know, what? I'm going to show you this. I just pulled this out. This is a little thing I made in third grade. You know, when you had those little dotted lines and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And you get to draw a picture at the top. Yeah, yeah. You know? This was me in third grade. I would like someone to help me dance. I like to dance because it is fun. I will be very good. Then I will have a show and be the best one. (laughs) You know? You have to send me a picture of that. I want to post that. Me (laughs) expressing. So I've always been the writer. Um... And he said, why don't you do something about addiction? He said, the space at the moment is, um, this was, you know, almost 10 years ago. The space at the moment isn't being filled by anybody. And we had, we created addictionblog.org together and broke it down by drug because I wanted to understand how do these drugs affect the brain? I wanted to understand basically why did I get addicted and my sisters didn't for Pete's sake, Right. They can drink, they can have a glass of wine, and they can stop. I can drink, I get lit up, and then I finish the bottle and I have another two. And then I'm dancing, (laughs) like my story says, and I'm the best one. (laughs) No? So I feel that blogging has helped me in my recovery to understand the brain disorder of addiction. To understand, we might not know where craving comes from, but there is a biological response in some people that could be genetic, But when you have the environmental uh, and you have the predisposition and you have a perfect storm, so you have to add a little bit of trauma in there, some kind of hurt and pain, 
then drugs become a perfect solution for that. So in addiction blog, we took 25 drugs, we asked the same questions and we answered them and I got to learn. So I've written over 2000 articles about drugs. It's awesome. Which um, I've been on this blog and website and it is phenomenal if you want to um, learn about the effects of different drugs on the brain, like you're talking about, Lee, and what else could readers possibly get access to in terms of the articles you're uh, putting out now? Yeah, we talk um, we talk about harm reduction. Actually, when we have contributors now. So I started on my own, and then just through attraction rather than promotion, people like yourself, because Ted is a contributor, um, people who are credentialed in the field, you know, licensed clinicians are, are writing about what they do. So we, we have someone who specializes in neuro-linguistic programming, right? Those messages, what do we say to ourselves? How can that change, become more positive in our recovery? We also talk about family and we, do, uh, we have bloggers who represent the loved ones, either the children who are now grown or the spouses. And We've even had we've had rabbis blog on addiction blog. Um, it kind of becomes a mosaic of this perspective of what is addiction because that's the main question behind addiction blog. What is addiction? So readers can find infographics. Those are really cool. So we've shown you how does a certain substance move through the body. So we show the whole metabolism. We also show what centers of the brain it affects. We've gone into how does a drug affect you in pregnancy? That's another infographic. That's really cool. So infographics, we have hundreds. Like literally, we have, I think, two, 300 infographics. And now we have almost 10 ebooks. So we wrote things for people in recovery, like drinking kombucha in recovery. You know that yeast drink that has alcohol in it? It's like a yeast. Yes, yeah. Kombucha. Yes, yeah. 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 Is it okay to drink that in recovery or smoking weed in recovery? We did one on that. Uh, we also have quitting, how to quit opioids. You know, we could take you through the whole thing from your stages of change. Where are you on the stage of change to what can you expect during withdrawal? And then what are the treatment protocols? So we've kind of become this one-stop shop for anybody who's looking for information about drugs. Because what we've done is taken those government websites and then rewritten them for the common public, for everybody. You know, so you don't. I don't to, mean common as. So a, yeah, so you don't. I have mean to general. <laughs> you don't have to sift through thousands and thousands of pages of research articles, but this is kind of like evidence-based, kind of what we've learned and know to be true in those articles. Yes. And sort of yeah. like in a digestible uh, format yes. that you you know you can spend like a couple minutes browsing and reading up on something that you're interested in or maybe thinking about, and that in itself is a positive. So nice yes. job. So just the- go to the, go to the NAV. If you want to know anything about a drug, you just go to the NAV. If it's a drug or prescription drug, find your drug. They're all alphabetical. So it goes from Ativan all the way down to Xanax, right? Anything in between. Uh, if you want to find meth, just go and find meth, and you'll find over 30 articles on each of those drugs. Hmm. Good, thank you. Good, thank you. Um, any words of wisdom for those uh, struggling in recovery? 
I mean, I, we kind of talked about like the three-step plan, but anything else you can think of that you think might be helpful to a listener out there? Yeah, whatever you're feeling now, it's not going to be the same thing that you're going to feel in 24 hours. So whatever you're feeling now, journal about it, exercise, talk to a friend, do something. Because in 24 hours, you're not going to feel the same way. So that would be my number one tip. Another thing, though, I do want to say to to listeners, if you want to find information online, it's really hard to sift through what is evidence-based and not. One thing you can do, this is a super good tip, is to do a site restriction search. So you type the word site, S-I-T-E, and you do a colon, and then you do .gov. And then you will only get search engine results that are coming back from U.S. government websites. Oh, excellent. Great takeaway. That is so helpful to sort through stuff related to addiction. Because if you're going to do a search, you're going to get a lot of commercial results. Hmm. And what do you mean by commercial? Uh, I mean like rehabs that are trying to get you to come to their rehab. Okay. So you can actually, by typing in, and say it again, so govr, G-O-V, colon. Is that, is so that it's site, S-I-T-E, colon, dot G-O-V. Okay. And then you'll get, like, sort of people not trying to sell you or get you in places, but rather this is just good government research that's been done. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, there's one more topic I wanted to approach with you, and it's this topic of harm reduction, which I don't think we talk about this enough. So I've facilitated just numerous operating while intoxicated groups. I've developed programs for that, people who get busted for driving while they're intoxicated. And I've seen people from one to two to three to, uh, I think my most OWIs I've ever, for a person I've worked with, has had nine. And so I just don't think there's enough conversation and enough space for talking about harm reduction because I think that's actually typically where people will first go before mm-hmm, kind of yeah. going clean because they try to manage it. And granted, if you're addicted, it's probably going to be difficult to management, manage it. Um, but then I think about these college students I work with, and we have an assignment where they, if they want to, they track their personal use for two weeks. So I teach them about mm-hmm. standard drinks, blood alcohol levels, and use. typically they're amazed because they don't really know what's actually going in the glass and what's in it. And it's been mm-hmm. an unbelievable discovery to find out how high some of these students' blood alcohol levels have gotten. Like, it's, it's like mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I'm like looking at them, I'm like, you are lucky to be alive, mm-hmm. you know, jacking your blood alcohol level up to, you know, 0.40 or 0.42. Okay. Crazy amount. Yeah. So, and then I think a lot of people always times are invested in like, or I don't want to give up drinking, but I don't want to get an OWI again. Ted, how do I do that? So, mm-hmm. just in the world of harm reduction, do you have any thoughts or just given what I've said, any avenues you want to go with that? Well, yeah. Okay. So, harm reduction, I think you need to have a few things that you plan out before you're going to use. So, if you're going to go out and you know that you're going to binge, for example, you need to plan safe tra- transportation. You need to have somebody who's going to look over you. You know, that's one thing. You need to have a trusted person. And the the thing people don't understand is that when you're using together, nobody is responsible. <laughs> you're 
need one person sober. The designated Keep a sober driver. person with you. Or the designated walker. walker. If you're on a university campus, walker. you're going to be walking around, you know? You need to stay safe that way. So plan. So plan ahead. Plan. Yeah, plan ahead. And then second, know the legal consequences of using, right? And have an overdose plan. If you're going to be binge drinking and there's an eventuality that something's going to happen, if you, what's going to happen if you, you know, can't stand up? What does your sober friend need to do? So have an overdose plan, you know, and, that, and that's not just for, for drinking. Like if you're using, and if you're using an opiate or an opioid, have Narcan around, Right. Get an injection shot. Like, be sure that you have it on hand. It can save your life. Because the thing about, I'm not here to judge somebody about using drugs. I'm not. But I want people to be safe. Yes. I I love that. And to make their decisions, to make their decisions in a conscious way. If you're going to use drugs, use use them consciously. And I think that's the basis of harm reduction. So I think it's almost like a three-point plan here we came up with off the cuff. But number one is planning ahead. Two is, is it having a support person there to monitor you? Is it- so, sober person. Have a sober person. That's the first thing. Yeah. So plan. And then what, the, the third one is preventing overdose. Yep. Yep. But what was the second one? Right. I can't remember. Know the legal consequences. Know the legal consequences. So what I would add actually. Don't be scared of it. Yeah, and what I would add to this plan, which is kind of similar to just like hanging out with all these college students over the last couple of years, is there's some like very concrete strategies to really think about when you when you look at, let's say you're going to choose to drink and you know, you become informed of what, what your blood alcohol level looks like and what effects that has on you. So we know if it goes above 0.20, you increase the risk for blackouts. So if you're going to drink and you, and, and you obviously we don't want you drinking and driving and all that stuff, but then what is your sort of comfort zone? Like, do you get a good buzz on? Do, is like 0.15 kind of 0.18 okay. kind of the main zone for you? And then you know you're not going to go above 0.20, so you know you're going to decrease your risk for blackouts. Um, and yeah. then obviously binging into the unknown where you can actually get alcohol poisoning is a whole other thing. But it's like actually thinking about that and figuring that out rather than just going haphazard. Yeah. I'm going to go out and now I'm drunk. Or right, who's going to drive me home? Well, everybody at the party's drunk. Um, or right. who's going to walk me? Well, I don't have anybody, so I'm just going to try to drive home myself, blah, blah, blah. So I, I really like this dialogue about really kind of figuring things out. And other students have said things that they've really thought has been very helpful for them is this app called the RU Buzzed app, which can be downloaded for free. And you can quickly put in your gender, your weight, wine, liquor, beer, how many you've had, and it will give you a rough calcula- calculation of where you're at in terms of your BAC level. And there's some other stuff out there where you can actually get breathalyzers attached to your phone as well to get um, even more specific. And then one other thing I learned the other week was a student had said that they had some success with they knew that there seems to be sippers or gulpers, I call them. Some people will sip on their drink. Other people are just kind of like gulp it down. And the gulpers have a problem, Mm -hmm. 
have an issue with kind of jacking their BAC levels up so fast because they're drinking so much. So if you find yourself being more of a gulper where you really down stuff quickly, then this one student identified the strategy of switching off to water every other drink um, or making sure they have one or less shots in each drink because they know they're going to consume a lot or just switch over to beer because it's like 12 ounces per beer. You know exactly what's in it. You can actually calculate kind of how you know, what your BAC level is going to be at, at certain points of the night. And I think the real takeaway for a lot of college students is figuring out the throw-up point. Do I want to wake up the next morning throwing up and feeling miserable for the day? And what what is that point? Yeah. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I find more college students interested in actually figuring that out. Like, I know if I drink this there much. Is, yeah, there is no social much. guide to intoxication. Maybe that's what we need to do. Yeah. Is like a book about yeah. stages of intoxication, because that's all you're describing, right? Like, until what stage do you want to get? <laughs> and where is the green zone for you? Yeah. Yes. And when do you enter a yeah. zone that you're going to actually need medical intervention? And what are those signs that you need the intervention? I, I don't think college students are prepared for that at all. Nobody talks about it. So you can end it. up getting... No, we should. Mixing yeah. drugs, too. Yes. Mixing yeah. drugs. Uh, and, and you need to know the science behind it. There's actually chemistry that's going on in your brain. Yes. But to know it, because yeah. because you're, you can enhance... If you're taking, like, like if you're drinking, and you take, the, let's say, a depressant like Valium, you are doubling the effect of both of those drugs. And you you probably didn't know that. But they both become double as strong. Yes, yes, yeah. and, that, and and especially Valium sedatives, barbiturates, man, those really fly under the radar. People don't even pay attention to that. They just think they're like harmless or like sleeping pills. Hey, I'm going to go out and get drunk and I'm gonna uh, take yeah. a sleeping pill, and that could be like lethal on some level. So yeah, good discussion. Well, any uh, closing words? Uh, my last my last words would be. You know, sober life is better than an intoxicated life for me. And I, I think that's, I, I, everyone I've talked to has said the same thing. And that you're not alone. That you might feel like you're alone in this vacuum and that life couldn't be worse. But it actually could get worse, that's for one. Um, but that when you ask for help, it's always going to be there. And with that, we salute you, Lee. Hey, Ted. All the best. Bye. Bye. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you to Lee Weber for joining us today. Make sure to check out addictionblog.org. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode features music by Pat Reinholtz, Lovely Socialite, and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.